Before we start, if you're enjoying these conversations, please make sure that you like or subscribe to Cleaning Up. It really helps other people to find us. Cleaning Up is brought to you by the Liebreich Foundation and the Gilardini Foundation. Hello, I'm Michael Liebreich and this is Cleaning Up. Welcome to Season 5. My guest today is the 8th Secretary General of the United Nations, Mr. Ban Ki-moon, served from 2007 until 2016. Please welcome Mr. Ban Ki-moon to Cleaning Up. Mr. Ban, Secretary General, thank you very, very much for joining us here today. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to see you again. We've been working very much uh, on sustainable development, climate change. I think we are still working to realize a sustainable world. But first, we have to address this climate change phenomena. Yeah. Well, that, that's right. Uh, and I was uh, very honored to work for you under Sustainable Energy for All. And in fact, even before then, when it was uh, um, just a coordinating function led by Kande uh, uh, Yamkala. Um, but tell me, the last few years, we've not interacted during this terrible pandemic. Um, and you've done some work on that through your foundation. Uh, what has what has been your contribution there? Uh, well, uh, the first thing I did after my retirement was to uh, establish a Pandemon Center for Global Citizens in Vienna, Austria. And then, of course, you know, I established my foundation, Pandemon Foundation for a Better Future in Seoul, Korea. Other than that, these uh, this will uh, facilitate my my work as a former Secretary General, because uh, I have been invited or I have been participating in many different, different, uh, very important international uh, conferences where uh, people were talking about climate, sustainable development, human rights, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, now then, I am now holding several in- positions as a chairperson or president of international organization. Uh, one is um, uh, Global Center on Adaptation on Climate. This is headquartered in Rotterdam, Netherlands. And then uh, I am also president of the assembly and the chairman of the council, both the titles I'm holding in the Global Green Growth Institute, GGGI. And the headquarter is located fortunately in Seoul, uh, but it is uh, with the 41 member, member states. And I'm also uh, working as a chairman of the Boao Forum. Uh, as you know, uh, this is what the Chinese people called Asian version of the Davos, Davos Forum. This is a big, the largest, the biggest uh, forum, policy forum in Asia, in Asia. Uh, but of course, you know, many, uh, European and American people participate. I'm the chairman of this, and I'm also uh, the chairman of the uh, uh, Ethics Commission of International Olympic Committee, for which uh, on that occasion, on that capacity, I'm going to participate in uh, Beijing Olympic Games. I was re-elected uh, this year in Tokyo Olympics for four more years. And uh, I'm also uh, working as a vice chairman of the elders. Uh, this is an independent uh, 
uh, you know, organization composed of uh, former heads of state or government or Nobel Peace Laureates. Uh, I'm uh, vice chairman of this and several others, but I cannot, you know, describe all what I have been doing, but I have been significantly very busy, busy in participating, doing almost the same things as a Secretary General, yeah. Yes, and, and um, we should note that uh, we're recording this just uh, two days after the passing of one of the elders, Desmond Tutu, I believe he was one of the elders. Oh, yes, yes, yes. And yes. Uh, very sad, I mean, he, was a, he, he lived an extraordinary life and we should uh, pay uh, our respects to him for his contribution, I think. Uh, yes, I'm very saddened that uh, he has uh, passed uh, yesterday and uh, the elders have uh, issued a statement uh, mourning his uh, death, yeah. yeah. Very good. And we can link to that in our show notes so that people can uh, read that statement. Um, but it must be strange for you. When we last met, it was in uh, Bern. You had just been elected for your first term uh, as chair of the IOC Ethics Committee. Uh, so mm -hmm. that means that we have not spoken for four years. Um, yeah, yeah. But it must also be just the last few years extraordinary for you, the, the lack of travel. Have you ever in your career traveled as little as in the last two years. You're lucky that uh, GGGI is located in, uh, in Seoul, South Korea, but everything else you've presumably done mostly virtually. Uh, this year, I began to travel uh, to twice to Washington DC, twice to uh, New York. And then uh, I traveled, of course, Tokyo to participate uh, Tokyo Summer Olympic Games. Then I traveled to uh, Netherlands to uh, open an office in Rotterdam, new office. Um, but this GCA, Global Center on Adaptation, was established in 2018 uh, with the initiative of uh, Dutch government. But it is okay. uh, composed of about 30, 30 uh, member, member states, including European Union, Germany, and, and many European, European countries. And there is... Um, uh, do very uh, you know climate friendly headquarter was uh, established in Rotterdam. That is uh, the world's largest uh, floating office uh, in on the sea, and it was uh, opened by His Majesty King of the Netherlands uh, last uh, September. September, I was there. Yeah. And I was also in Austria. Okay, so, yeah. so you have started uh, the, the relentless travel uh, that we spoke about four years ago. You have started again. I want to ask you about um, the, the pandemic um, because, you know, you, you've been at the pinnacle of global affairs. Do you think coming out of the pandemic, hopefully we are coming out of it, uh, if not now, then, then certainly during 2022, we would hope. But do you think when it is eventually over, the global system will be strengthened by the experience, you know, forged through the flames of the pandemic, or do you think it has exposed such fault lines, inequalities, um, that they will sort of fester and, and uh, hold back it, global action on everything from peace to climate change? Mm -hmm. Yeah, of course, you know, uh, 
the reason why we have to suffer, why we are suffering from this pandemic is because the world's leaders have always been forgetting what they had to learn from their past experiences. Uh, we have been repeating all this uh, since the beginning of the 20th century now, uh, starting from uh, Spanish flu in 1918. And then I sincerely hope that we will be over from this pandemic. Then whole world's people, particularly political leaders, they have to remember what we have been suffering, not to repeat again the same foolish mistakes. There were many warnings. There were many warnings. In 2014, the many Western African countries suffered from Ebola. Ebola. The mortality rate was much, much higher than this uh, you know, uh, coronavirus. Mortality rate was 45% at that time. At that time, United Nations and whole international community, particularly the United States, was you know, coordinating very closely. Then we were able to eradicate uh, Ebola in a relatively short period, not, not you know, two years like this way. Uh, what we had happened, what we did at that time was that um, I discussed this matter with Margaret Chen, the then Director General of WHO. Look, uh, it seems that uh, this Ebola crisis uh, cannot be handled by WHO only. Uh, so let's work together. And then we brought all these Ebola uh, things to under my direct control. So United Nations, World Bank, CDC of America, and the whole organizations of the United Nations, including WHO, work together. Then I immediately reported to the Security Council. Uh, then Security Council, in just one day, upon my recommendation, adopted the resolution stating that Ebola disease is a serious maintenance, and is a serious threat to the maintenance of international peace and security and uh, decided to establish UNMIR, United Nations Mission for Ebola Emergency Response. That was the, for the first time in the history of the United Nations when UN established a military, I mean, a mission for the purpose of health. And even military people were dis dispatched, United States, United Kingdom, uh, friends, and they dispatched, you know, military soldiers to uh, block, block all these uh, three most stricken countries, like uh, Liberia, Sierra Leone, Guinea. And I traveled myself, and uh, together with the World Bank, uh, we mobilized the whole necessary resources. And General Assembly was uh, very quick again uh, to endorse all what I was doing. And then. Uh, Early March last year, 2020, I telephoned to Tedros uh, of WHO. Uh, look, uh, this seems to be a very serious issue. You may not be able to handle this uh, crisis alone, WHO alone. WHO 
by its own nature, it's not an operating organization. It's a research and uh, you know, uh, education, et cetera, et cetera. But they don't have that capacity now. And then unfortunately, President Trump, he withdrew membership from WHO rather than supporting it. That was the beginning of the uh, problems for, unfortunately, for international community. Now, the fight over who was the origin, where was the origin of this Ebola, I mean, uh, pandemic, uh, was, could have done much later. We should have addressed this one first. And then we can discuss, we could have discussed this one. Now, with the uh, other variants like Delta and Omicron, now we are, you know, uh, overstretched now. We are, you know, WHO is overstretched. And United Nations, you know, is not well organized. I'm not blaming, I'm not blaming, but we have to learn from what we had done before. This is a very important lesson. That's why I'm emphasizing that we must not repeat if, unfortunately, if anything happens in the, in the future, then we have to immediately remember what we had done now. So we must build back better now. We must build back and we have to much, to do much better and much more for climate action. Yeah. Well, that's right. And if I, if I paraphrase, my question was, if you think we'll come out stronger or weaker, and your answer really is, it's up to us. We have to learn the lessons. Yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. It's and, up to us. Yeah. and that is, that is certainly uh, very applicable to um, climate and to the energy access challenge, which is um, where I was privileged to work with you in the past. Um, I want to I want to move on to that. Um, yeah, yeah. You have spoken. You, you, uh, it was under your leadership that the UN sort of switched on to energy and clean energy, sustainable energy for all as an issue. If we go back to the Millennium Development Goals, energy did not feature, even though it was so essential to achieve them all. But it was not a goal. And then if you move forwards to the SDGs, which of course were developed under your period as Secretary General and with your uh, mentorship throughout, of course, we've got SDG 7, Sustainable Energy for All. Um, and you've spoken in the past about why it was an issue that resonated for you. Um, can you talk about that? Yeah. Energy is an important component in the everyday life of uh, everyone. In particular, you know, a smallholder, you know, businesses and farmers. Uh, but it, without energy in 21st century, you cannot do anything. So that's the period. It can support the transformational of healthy, inclusive, and sustainable food systems so that both the production is improved and the environment is protected at the same time. The three, three main drivers behind all this uh, transformation are ensuring food security, mitigating greenhouse gas emissions of the end user sector and increasing resi resilience uh, to climate change induced hazard. We need clearer roadmaps and the joint action among all stakeholders around the world to influence the path forward for clean energy in terms of funding, diversity, 
innovation and policy making. The Bandimon Center, uh, located in uh, Vienna, uh, was a contributor to the key findings developed by the UNIDOM, UNIDOM, uh, United Nations Industrial Development Organization, uh, a Vienna Strat Energy Forum's virtual series, uh, Vienna Energy Forum's virtual series. This series, series summarized in a set the policy recommendations for policymakers to align their energy transition effort with the sustainable food system. As you know, uh, in September 2011, that's you know uh, me uh, who announced at the General Assembly uh, a new initiative called the Sustainable Energy for All, where you worked as a very important uh, partner there. Uh, then. Uh, General Assembly, upon my recommendation, declared the year 2012 as the International Year of Sustainable Energy for All, uh, sending a clear and strong signal about the centrality of energy in ending poverty and addressing climate change. You know, all this is a cross-cutting cross -cutting issue. Without energy, you cannot do anything. Now, you can, uh, we can really... Uh, uh, I called for action around the three objectives to be achieved by 2030. Uh, first, ensure universal access to modern energy services. Second, double the rate of improvement of energy efficiency. So double the share of renewable energy in the global energy mix. So energy service, modern energy services, Efficiency, energy efficiency, and the reasonable uh, energy mix. These are very important ones. As you mentioned, uh, uh, Kande Junkela, uh, I appointed him as a special uh, representative for uh, sustainable energy for all. So uh, I really uh, thank you for your own uh, leadership in engaging in uh, C for all, you know, sustainable energy for all. Yeah. Thank you. It was a, a pleasure to serve uh, during the creation of that initiative. And in fact, Kande Yamkala is a former guest on Cleaning Up. I think it was around episode oh. 17 or 18. Oh, and I he see. talked us through some of the negotiations behind the scenes, how um, he actually got the Americans and others to accept those three uh, goals that you spoke about. Um, I, I, I just wonder if you were doing the same exercise now whether you would also include access to broadband internet for all, given the importance of the internet in learning for children. Yeah, energy access is extremely crucial uh, for you know, everyone, including uh, children, the generation who go to school, especially um, now when schools are closing uh, because of the pandemic. Um, now, however, the digital access and the energy access are inherently unequal, unequal, and threaten to deepen this learning crisis. But even before the pandemic, in many instances, children have no light to do homework for work. This is exactly what I experienced during my time when I was young, young children. We didn't have electricity. I had to study under the team, and team, you know, 
candlelight or something like this way. So, you know, uh, yes, uh, very sad that uh, still at this time, 21st century, there are more than uh, 1.5 billion people or, or around so who do not have uh, uh, light uh, energy, energy service in their homes. The need to use, again, the internet, in, internet exacerbates, exacerbates the energy access uh, issue. It comes with additional questions and connectivity and internet costs, especially in developing countries, as well as uh, a broader capacity needs like uh, digital literacy. And now, the overall need for clean energy access uh, for intensive usage, including production, should be focused. Simply installing a solar light to read at night only illuminates poverty and uh, does not tackle the systemic uh, issues uh, before us. So uh, we have to really uh, uh, make sure that uh, everybody has access to uh, sustainable energy. Yeah. Absolutely. I entirely echo uh, that sentiment. And um, uh, it's something that I look forward to working on uh, again and continuously, in fact. Um, I want to move forward to the Paris Agreement, um, which, of course, also uh, 2015 um, took place during your term as uh, Secretary General. Uh, mm -hmm. And some would say it was one of your crowning achievements. We've spoken on cleaning up to quite a few of the major figures. Uh, mm -hmm. Laurence Tubiana, um, we had uh, the US negotiator Todd Stern, Amber Rudd, who was the UK uh, negotiator, uh, and quite a few of the supporting cast. Mm -hmm. uh, people like uh, now Deputy Prime Minister of Spain, Teresa Rivera, uh, Rachel Kite, who of course was your special representative on climate and energy at the UN, uh, in fact, was our second guest very early. Um, so we're creating this archive of memories, in a sense, of that negotiation. What are your memories? What do you recall most vividly from that extraordinary two-week period in December 2015? The most, uh, one of the most reproduced images uh, from that day is, of course, uh, you know, holding up in arms uh, with uh, uh, Christiana Figueres, uh, um, myself, and also uh, Laurent Fabius, uh, president of the meeting, and president uh, Francois Hollande, uh, and uh, El Gore, who was uh, jumping, you know, uh, dancing you know, like uh, everybody everybody was excited everybody was excited. i have never seen such kind of an exciting moment when everyone was jumping to dance you know so that means that means uh, conversely speaking how difficult the negotiation had been and how much you know tired people were you know just uh, fatigued so uh, at least uh, from at least from learning from the uh, humiliating humiliation in uh, the Copenhagen, Copenhagen COP15 in 2009, people, you know, uh, reaffirmed their commitment. Look, we have to make it happen. Uh, then. Uh, I think uh, we were that also that kind of uh, humiliating uh, failure 
has given us some motivation, motivation and solidarity among the people of the world to do something by 2015. That is what uh, you know, I can tell you at this time. I cannot go on detail how difficult all these are detailed in negotiations, but that was the, uh, to my mind, one of the very few moments when whole worlds were united without any difference. They were united for people of the world and our planet Earth and for the future of our succeeding generations. Marvelous. And we actually spoke to Laurence Tubiana about how the outcome exceeded her expectation with the one and a half degrees being mentioned as the aspirational goal with the five-year ratchet and so on. And of course, the first five-year period turned out to be six years because of the pandemic. Yeah, but yeah. the five-year ratchet period, um, the first one came up in Glasgow COP26. So do you think that Glasgow built sufficiently on the success of Paris when you followed the outcomes where you were you pleased or were you disappointed? Uh, you know, it's uh, half and half. Uh, I had the much higher expectation, uh, higher expectation in Glasgow. And it's true that uh, the UK government officials led by Locke, you know, uh, Locke. Alok Sharma. Alok Sharma, Alok Sharma, and many other uh, the foreign ministers, Everyone was uh, concentrating their time and energy to make it uh, great success. Of course, at the end, at the end, there are some positive developments and some uh, disappointing developments. Now, um, while we knew that uh, we entered negotiation without large emitters being present uh, on a leadership level, like Brazil, uh, China, India, and Russia. We did some, some successes like South Africa's deal with the donor countries to end the coal in the next 20 years. Nigeria's pledge to cut emissions to net to zero by 2060. But, uh, and also one was that we were able to have a rule book, which has been pending for five years. A rule book was done. Now, uh, and China and United States had made some uh, uh, agreement on uh, reducing methane, methane, as well as uh, some other uh, political uh, agreement. Now, uh, in, on methane the pledge, there are more than uh, 100 countries joined. That was a, a positive one. Over 20 countries have signed a statement aligning international public finance with a clean energy transition. That was the first time, uh, first time a broad group of countries have uh, agreed on the need to shift overseas finance away from all fossil fuels and the financial institutions and instruments and toward the clean energy. Now, there is some disappointing issues that they were not able to um, agree on the roadmap of funding $100 billion as they have agreed in 2009 in Copenhagen. Uh, I, I sincerely hoped that the big countries, the donor countries would have agreed on this. 
Now, one positive thing, one, the, one thing is that they agreed to agree. They agreed to agree in Sharm el Sheikh in Egypt next year for that. So uh, without providing financial and technological support to uh, developing countries, we will never be able to expect that we can, we can do it. Uh, then Global Energy Alliance for People and Planet signaled an importance of much needed philanthropic capital to catalyze uh, much greater levels of investment needed for countries to achieve their energy access. Now, um, then another one is uh, some uh, disappointing is that they have not been able to agree on carbon neutrality 2060. Uh, they, because of the uh, Indian objection, they agreed that uh, by or around the middle of the century. Uh, but another the positive aspect is nobody's talking about that. Uh, everybody's talking about carbon neutrality 2050, even though legally speaking, people agree that by and around the middle of the century, that means uh, it can go to up to 2070 as India uh, insisted. Uh, but uh, you know, many countries, including South Korea, they have uh, firmly committed to carbon neutrality 2050. So we must make sure that carbon neutrality 2050 and also um, uh, ambitious uh, NDCs by 2030, nationally determined the contributions. Otherwise, otherwise, global temperature will rise up to 2.1 degrees or 2.4 degrees Celsius. That's uh, something which I, I would never like to even you know, imagine. So we have to work very hard, very hard. So um, interesting because, um, I mean, in a sense, those are a list of the disappointments in a way. Um, mm -hmm. But I look at it and I say, well, you know, in the Paris Agreement, net zero was uh, before the end of the century. And yeah, yeah. so, you know, the, I look at the direction of travel. I don't see uh, Glasgow as the destination, but I see mm -hmm. it as an incredible improvement and uh, tightening uh, along the way from Paris, using the Paris framework. So I think you may be being too modest about the success of Paris in getting us on this um, uh, arc, this bending curve down of, of emissions. And when, uh, when you have uh, higher expectations, then there is naturally some more uh, expect. I mean, uh, disappointment. But basically, I'm a positive thinking person. Positive thinking person. Without positive thinking without positive mind, you will never be able to make any success. So in that regard, believe, trust me that uh, I'm a positive uh, thinking. So there are many positive issues, positive issues, yeah. Let, let me turn to one of the um, achievements of Glasgow, but the issue that it highlights, which is the US-China relationship. Um, mm -hmm. And um, We've just heard actually one of the recent episodes was with David Sandelow, who's one of the great experts on that US-China relationship uh, as pertains to climate. Um, we saw the agreement um, both before Paris and before Glasgow between the US and China, um, which really enabled the agreements to be signed. But is it really possible to be optimistic 
you know, given the rising tensions between those two blocks, between those two countries, you know, how optimistic can we be? I'm just very concerned that if we see supply chains being separated, if we see a Chinese internet and a US internet, if we see more and more tensions in trade, but also in actual spheres of influence in Southeast Asia, is climate action likely to be at some point a casualty? Mm. Well, uh, considering this uh, political confrontational relationship between the US and China, uh, I think uh, in Glasgow, uh, they made a good uh, positive, uh, positive uh, cooperation uh, when it comes to uh, climate. And that is the uh, most important part. Uh, as you know, uh, uh, US government or some other people was saying that there are three big uh, capital C, uh, confrontation, you know, cooperation and competition. But this is the cooperation area, area of cooperation. Uh, I was happy to see an obvious uh, presence of U.S. at the COP26, including President Biden himself and uh, John Kerry, John Kerry, special envoy. And also um, he had a very good meeting with uh, his counterpart of uh, uh, China, uh, uh, you know, uh, Xi Jinping. Xi now, um, while there is a clearly political will, it is also a disappointment that the U.S. did not enter negotiation with financial stamina uh, to back this up now. Uh, it was also a positive surprise, you know, surprise uh, to see the U.S. and China issued joint Glasgow declaration uh, on enhancing climate action in the 2020s which sets a good um, example and shows a dedication from the two countries toward combating uh, climate action. I have been speaking out that um, without Chinese uh, support and working together between the President Obama and the President Xi Jinping, this um, Paris climate change would not have been possible. We might not have Paris agreement at this time. If this kind of a political confrontational uh, situation continues. It was because uh, President Obama and uh, President Xi Jinping worked together. Uh, when uh, there was a G7, uh, G20 summit meeting in Hangzhou in 2016, uh, President Xi Jinping took an initiative to invite the President Xi Jinping and myself. So three of us, three of us met before the G20 summit meeting began. That was, if my memory serves me correct, September 3rd, 2016. And then uh, the initiative was that uh, both the President of China and the United States presented the I mean, uh, ratification certificate that they have ratified Paris Climate Change Agreement. The rate of emission level combined by two countries became 42% out of 55%, which was required to enable the Paris Climate Change Agreement to, to be ratified, uh, effective, effective. So having 55 countries and with 55% uh, 
of global greenhouse gas emission was a huge task, but just two countries have taken 42%. It was easy. So that's why the Paris climate change was became effective on 4th of November 2016. 2016. Then just imagine, suppose what had happened. Suppose it had not happened after two months, President Trump came into power and he withdrew from the Paris Climate Change Agreement, then we would not have this one even now. So uh, I'm still these days, you know, uh, sighing, having a deep sigh of relief, deep sigh of, sigh of relief that we are having this one. Now, the matter of cooperation between China and the United States is something which I ask and urge them to work on this uh, global issues first, rather than uh, you know, uh, confronting on political or security issues. I think first come should first. The climate does not discriminate who is United States or China. They just you know, um, take their own course. Nature doesn't listen to what we say. We have to listen to the voices and warning of the nature. Right. So we can't negotiate uh, with physics. Um, yeah, that's right. But what we've got now is um, a potential collision course between the goals of climate action and the various foreign policy and also um, human rights uh, requirements of the world. Because, as you know, the great success of Paris uh, and then Glasgow and so on is built on the fact that renewable energy has become so cheap that it has become much more of a no regrets. Um, uh, uh, it's become no regrets for countries to adopt climate action or much lower regrets. And that's been because of the lowering of cost. And a lot of that has been driven by supply chains, by Chinese manufacturing. And of course, uh, a lot of the solar grade silicon comes from Xinjiang province, where, uh, which is the epicenter of China's activities around the Uyghurs. And the US has now passed legislation saying that companies must certify, must be uh, transparent, that their supply chains are slave labor free. And this is, of course, very, uh, it's very confrontational. It's very uh, contentious. But surely that sort of human rights, uh, that scale of human rights uh, abuse and the action, does that not trump the short-term requirements to deal with climate action? Now, um, I'm not uh, saying this because I'm uh, trying to support what uh, China is uh, doing. I'm just uh, saying this one out of my own experiences or wisdom. I think we need, we need to have a wisdom in addressing all political, economic, uh, or global challenge issues or human rights issues. There are something which needs to be done first, then we can do it later. When there is a fire, you must put up fire first and save. Otherwise, you cannot save humans, you know, who may, people who may be there, stocked, stocked up there. Human rights is uh, inalienable rights of human beings. 
And we have UN Human Rights Council where we, we can address this one. But as I said earlier, the climate change does not care where you are coming from. It's uh, nature versus humanity. Humanity versus planet Earth or climate versus planet Earth. So we have only one planet Earth and we have only one life. So we have to take urgent action, urgent action, regardless of what, just to put up fire, which is burning. Sea level is rising, climate change is approaching much, much faster than before. And then may we might expect, there's no time to lose. Therefore, I'm really urging political leaders, use your wisdom, use your wisdom first, and think about our own humanity, future of humanity and our planet Earth. Then let's work on that first. Then let's talk about human rights. Then, you know, I'm, uh, as a former Secretary General, I have been a vocal, you know, supporter, vocally, you know, criticizing those countries who do not support our human rights. And I'm doing the same thing again now. But at this time, at this time, we have to put up fire first. That's, we have no time. Nature has its own way. We, can, we cannot you know, negotiate with the nature. That's what I have been repeatedly saying even 10, 15 years ago when I was a Secretary General. Now, even after my uh, you know, uh, assignment uh, responsibilities of Secretary General, I'm repeating the same thing. Let's, let's focus on this issue. Yeah. But isn't the reality, though, that we have to deal with both issues at once? Um, the human rights, it's, you know, there are others who would say that human rights is the fire and that climate change is the one that is, it, of course, it's going to, uh, it, it, it is a decadal problem, but the human rights are here and now. Um, and, you know, you've already um, mentioned that as part of your role as chair of the ethics committee of the IOC, you will be going to Beijing for the Olympics. The US, the UK, Australia and Canada have declared a diplomatic boycott. Is that an appropriate way of dealing with these two issues at the same time? Or do you think they should put that aside, go celebrate the Olympics, deal with climate change and come back to the human rights issues? Let there be no misunderstanding. Uh, let there be no misunderstanding. I don't want to be misunderstood by you know, what I have said that I'm not uh, paying attention to human rights. I am much, much more a vocal person when it comes to human rights. Uh, I have been working for women's rights. I've been working for uh, same, uh, same sex, you know, were people who were discriminated from our daily lives. And let there be no misunderstanding that I'm going to Beijing uh, despite all this uh, diplomatic boycott. This has nothing to do with the diplomatic boycott. I am the chairman of the Ethics Commission of IOC. I have to be there during the games. It is mandatory. It's a mandatory. I, I'm doing my own job as uh, a chairman of the Ethics Commission. There was some report that my going there became a news. 
But this has nothing to do with the current political issues on human rights issues. I am going there. Then what about the IOC president? Why he's going then? It's the same logic. Then what about all these sports people, the athletes? So I think we do not, we should not mix sports with politics and we should not mix and this climate with the human rights. We will continue. We will continue to focus. We will continue to argue against China to improve their human rights. But at the same time, we have to address the urgent, the most urgent issues. We have to tackle this climate issue. Yeah. So I, I, I'm not sure if you recall. In fact, I am also an Olympic athlete. I was a skier. Uh, in 1992. So what you've said about the athletes um, should not certainly be caught up in any of this because this is their their career, their life, their aspiration. This is everything to them. Of course, uh, of I course. think I have probably come down in a different place on the diplomatic boycott, which I believe is actually uh, a justified and, and appropriate thing. But I also appreciate that your role as chair of the ethics committee is very different and you have professional responsibilities. It is an incredibly complex uh, area and we don't really have time. Uh, we could do a whole other episode of cleaning up on how the Olympics could be used um, to further action on climate and also human rights and those very important issues that you raised about gender inclusion and um, uh, and also LGBT uh, issues where we had a fantastic um, uh, conversation with Lord Brown, the probably one of the most senior uh, gay business people in the world, former CEO of BP. Um, but as I say, we're out of time, so sadly. Um, but I would love to thank you for uh, coming on to Cleaning Up, for talking with us, for sharing some memories of the Paris Agreements and your thoughts on some of the most pressing current issues of the day. It's really, truly a privilege to speak with you. Thank you very much. It's been a great pleasure. And thank you for your leadership, continuing leadership on working on energy and climate and all human rights issues. And let us work together to make this world sustainable and better for all. That's our moral responsibility for me. I do not have any political and legal responsibility now, but as one of the private citizens, but with using my other other titles, and I'm going to continue uh, until we can declare that uh, we have done something to make this a sustainable uh, world. Thank you very much, and hope to see you again soon. Thank you very much, and indeed, I very much hope that we can meet in person soon. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. So that was Mr. Ban Ki-moon, 8th Secretary-General of the United Nations. My guest next week will be Pasquale Pat Romano, CEO of ChargePoint, the US's leading technology provider for electric vehicle charging. Please join me at this time next week for a conversation with Pat Romano. Cleaning Up is brought to you by the Liebreich Foundation and the Gilardini Foundation.